Welcome to the Sound and Marketing Podcast. Today, we pick up where we left off by talking about sonic branding with Daniel Jackson of Sonic Brand. We spent the greater part of last episode talking about the opportunity of using sound in your branding, but not just hyped sound, sound with purpose that is thought out through a sound strategy. Strategy is definitely important. You can't just act because, oh, I've been hearing about the sonic branding thing. Okay, let's just like throw everything into the wind and see what sticks. I feel, and I think that you agree with me, I feel like sometimes it's good to be quiet. (laughs) Where's the line? Where do you see, like, I, I know that we talk about sonic branding kind of a lot as a whole, like a sonic branding package of sorts, but do you feel that there are some situations where all they need is a logo or all they need is a functional sound? And how, how do you go about figuring out where to have that silence, where to keep that space? Uh, well, just referencing the 20,000 Hertz podcast again, we know that we can't really have silence on this, on this planet, which is a shame. We'd go crazy. The, uh, what we're looking for is, is intentionality always. Uh, so every choice needs to be intentional and, and, and ladder up to a higher purpose. That's really what, what strategy means is just a, a series of intentional decisions. So where to use sound, where not to use sound, it's, it's just, it depends what the brand is trying to do, what the, the communicator is trying to do and, and what point they're trying to make. I, I very rarely go to a brand or any sort of client customer with silence as the as the lead option, uh, <laughs> I, I I could probably count that on the fingers of uh, well one maybe one finger. I worked for Procter and Gamble for a while on their Crest toothbrushes. They had some a brand of electric toothbrushes. There was uh, a try me button on them, so they'd be hanging in the supermarket. You could push through the plastic to press the button. You could hear how they sounded, and when in, when you pick it up off the shelf because it looked beautiful and nice packaging, nice colors and everything. You press the button and it would sound like a jackhammer. It was and people would just like drop it in a a hurry. It was noisy. It was not a smooth sound. It sounded like it was going to shake your teeth out. And so that was their their second moment of truth in the PNG parts. The first moment of truth is sort of considering to buy the brand. Second one is when you pick it up off the shelf and they were failing at that moment of truth. And so the, the, the strategy there was to make it quiet, make it sound beautiful, make it sound like it was cleaning your teeth, not, not trying to knock them out. And I think that piece of work, which was all about engineering, all about sound deadening, all about stopping the, the natural noise of the, of the motor and the movement, not necessarily changing the mechanism, but changing the way the sound was dampened. That was probably the number one time I've been involved in, in quieting, making things more quiet. Uh, but then that reminds me that everything I did for, for them, I just learned from uh, case studies in the automotive industry where they, they talk about noise, vibration, and harshness as being the enemies of, of the quality perception in the car. So they're always trying to eliminate noise, vibration, and harshness from, from what they do. And we're all privileged to grow up now in a kind of Tesla world where cars, generally speaking, sound pretty quiet, and they don't vibrate too much, and they're, they're not very harsh to sound. But I'm old enough to remember when cars really, they sounded pretty terrible, but they learn how to make things quiet. So a perception of quality does often come from the absence of sound. So I guess in a, in a luxury market, you're looking for things to be quieter. And so, yeah, I, I guess I would be, yeah, I'm capable of recommending quiet, maybe not silence, but definitely quiet. PNG would are so good at what they do. Mm-hmm. They're so good at engineering products and understanding consumers 
that at, at a certain stage, my particular shtick of talking about sound, but not necessarily being a scientist, I got found out a little bit, but the output was uh, a lot more toothbrushes sold. Even if I personally didn't uh, have the scientific chops to know exactly how to uh, counteract the, the noise, vibration, harshness of those toothbrushes. Well, there was another another study that I studied. I can't, I can't remember what year it was. I think it was in the early 2000s, but it was Sun Chips. Did you hear about the Sun Chips bag? All right. No, go ahead. They created a um, completely uh, biodegradable, compostable Sun Chips bag. So they're, they're being environmentally friendly. They have these great intentions. Um, but then when they circulated the bag, they found out that it was just touching the bag and crinkling the bag. It was so loud that it became a joke. There was a Facebook page talking about like, how loud is your sun chips bag? Like all of this stuff. And so they had these great intentions, but after like seven months and, and they made fun of it too, because when they launched in Canada, they said, if our bag is too loud, we'll provide earplugs or something like that. But, um, they, they, they scrapped the bag you know, pun intended, and came up with another one that was just as biodegradable, but they actually paid attention to the sound of, like there was one air, uh, one pilot that said the bag was louder than his cockpit. Like it was too loud. So <laughs> I think they should have leaned into it. Uh, the perception of crunch is all tied up in the sound of the, the potato chip. If you take away the sound of the chip, then the perception of crunch is much, much lower. So they definitely should have leaned, leaned into that. They might have for and, a little uh, bit, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, gone with being the, the crunchiest potato chip or the, uh, yeah, that would have worked for them too. Sounds a good one. I'm going to read up on that. I'll, say, I'll send you a link. <laughs> Please do. Um, what would you say would be some common misunderstandings that, that you run into when, somebody, when somebody's asking you questions about sonic branding or something that you see people doing that you continue to see a misunderstanding? It still fascinates me how little musical understanding there is in the advertising communications industry. Everybody used to learn an instrument when I was at school, even if it was just a recorder or uh, some terrible violin. But now we seem to have a generation of people who haven't got even the slightest notion of how music is made or, or what music does. And so the, the question of, can this music be flexible, always strikes me as, as a bit crazy, because if you understand how music is made and, and, and what the fundamentals of music are, then you know that music is inherently flexible. Mm -hmm. So that upsets me. The fact that, that our audience and the, and the people in charge of brands generally have some sort of uh, business or art or design background, and almost none of them have a music background. We're, we're always fighting against the business or visual drivers that, that people still uh, rely upon. The misconception that music, and I'll, I'll stick with music because it, the, the, it is the main tool still in, in the, the dominant part of advertising. The idea that music can or should convey rational information or should in some way not just tap into emotion but should be asked to do something more rational is also kind of crazy to me. We're there to provide the emotional context. And there are plenty of other things on the screen or in the voiceover that convey rational information. Music should be used just for emotion as far as I'm concerned. So that idea that you're trying to do too much with music often leads to, to conflict because you can never tell the whole story just through music, even though people want us to. There are no, there are there aren't too many mistakes to be made in the creative process. The, the, a lot of mistakes come in in an, a lack of ability or a lack of foresight, or a lack of experience in implementing a sonic branding strategy. So really, the implementation is, is where mistakes are made. 
which is why a lot of Sonic branding strategies over the years have failed, have not stuck, have needed to be redone. So there's a famous soft drinks brand that had a fantastic uh, musical identity built around uh, a mnemonic, but, and no names here, but they, they hadn't, here's a mistake, they hadn't bought the rights to the music properly. Oh. Uh, it had been commissioned through an agency, it had been commissioned for a piece of advertising, and then it ran for six, seven years all over the world, became super famous, millions, if not hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of media budget spent on making these notes famous in, con in connection with the brand. And then all of a sudden, the guys who wrote the music piped up and said, excuse me, you haven't paid for this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a huge, huge claim for license revenues and, and royalty revenues. And the result is the brand has to start all over again and develop a new set of mnemonics. So a common mistake certainly used to be chain of title, like ownership, like being aware of, of how music uh, ownership and copyright works so that you don't get stung. It's still a major entry point for me in, into brands when they've, been, they've done something wrong, they've made a mistake. They've either had an unlicensed use or licensed the wrong thing or infringed someone else's copyright, and they just need some help to, to move away from, from a problem. Uh, so yeah, people do tend to make mistakes with music because it is complicated uh, and they make mistakes about ownership. Do you think that um, agencies and such, maybe companies in general, try and do it on their own and um, they either choose not to reach out to a sonic branding expert or they they don't know that there is such a thing? Is is Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think plenty try and do it on their own. Plenty are just not the guys who ultimately are responsible. The whole process of building a brand is not vertically integrated. It's everything that could be decoupled has been decoupled for, for cost control purposes. So you might have a, a person at the brand, then you'll have an agency, and then you'll have a production aggregator, then you'll have a cost controller, then you'll have a production agency, and then you'll have a uh, maybe a freelance producer, and then you'll have a, a musician or a sonic branding company. And it's not always clear to anyone whose responsibility it is to make sure that chain of title is, is a clean thing and make sure that the copyright has been acquired in the right way. And often an edict can come down from the brand that it must be a work for hire or a, or a perpetual license. But that, that same uh, edict won't make it past the procurement business or won't make it past the, the production company. So you end up with a, a limited license on the, uh, from the musician to the production company. So it's the, the problem is one of of accountability. Everyone kind of knows that they, they want the music and they don't want to have to pay more for it, uh, particularly in the Sonic branding context, but they don't necessarily know how to do that. And so there's a little bit of naivety when some of the, let's be honest about it, some of the Sonic branding guys out there would rather retain ownership in the, in the, in the sound that they're creating and license it to the brand. And that's, you know, that's how visual branding used to be. So the guys who used to develop visual logos they work that way as well. They'd want a royalty for, for their visual logos, but it didn't take too long for everyone to figure out that was insanity and to start demanding that, that visual design was a work for hire. The same thing happened in photography where uh, there was a lot of uh, limited licensing going on. And so reuse became difficult. And eventually the brands decided to invest in works for hire. Music is, is still, it's in this in-between place where uh, some brands are, are savvy and will invest in work for hire. But some brands just, they don't know what they're doing and they end up uh, essentially leasing their own branding from a 
from a sonic branding agency or a musician, more likely a musician because the sonic branding agencies are generally a little more open about this stuff. And then once they're leasing it, then they, they can be in for some long-term uh, payments. So there is, it's not the most sexy part of our industry to talk about, but there is a fundamental uh, knowledge of music publishing and copyright that is required in order to be a sonic brander, as opposed to being a musician who can write a catchy tune or a, a sound designer who can uh, make something sound beautiful. Certainly there are still mistakes to be made there. So in a perfect world, for sonic branding, how would it be best utilized alongside brand marketing? What would be your suggestion of, okay, here's, we're going to do this first. We're going to like say work alongside the marketing company rather than playing, you know, a telephone game or something like that. What, what would be the best uh, functional way for you to proceed with your sonic branding to get an effective result? There's, so there's a difference there between the perfect world and the, the real world. Perfect world is there's one really powerful person at the brand with an infinite amount of budget and time. And we get to create the sound for every single touch point and then send it to those touch points and they'll just use it as it's delivered to them. That's the perfect world. That doesn't exist anywhere. In reality, the sonic branding business is an exercise in, uh, in complex stakeholder management. We have a thing, we have, we have sound and, and particularly music, which is incredibly uh, subjective and, inc and also incredibly hard to describe, to, uh, to comment upon. You can't pin it up on a wall and point to bits and uh, hasn't been well-defined like Pantone colors or, or shapes. It's, it's, it's really ephemeral. It's really, really slippery stuff. So we're dealing with a really slippery medium, but we're dealing in a medium where people aren't generally trained to understand that medium. And at the same time, every single person who hears it has a visceral and immediate response and is perfectly happy to tell you their opinion. So you have this, this huge disconnect and difficulty. The management of, of the stakeholders in this is, is the hardest part. In many ways, writing a piece of music or, or coming up with a, a voice or a piece of sound design is relatively straightforward if you are able to interpret a brief and look at a visual context and, or speak to a brand director. Getting everyone to understand why that one choice is the only choice, that's the hard bit. So that means you've got to have a, a really good argument lined up for the advertising agency, for the PR agency, for the CMO, for the CFO, for the CEO, for the CEO's kids, for the CEO's dog. Like everybody's going to have a, there's going to be so many moments of truth where it can all fall apart. So it's, it's, it's being able to tick all the boxes around creative choices, but also, uh, how much the thing is going to cost or save because a good sonic branding strategy saves the brand money doesn't cost the brand money uh, it's about having uh, a good understanding of how it's going to be perceived by consumers because the voice of the, the consumer the voice of the listener is really important in this so there's got to be research done at, at every level not just in terms of uh, is it going to grow recognition and, and grow memorability but is it going to grow affinity ultimately are people going to like it and like the brand more if they use it and so that you need to have all this stuff lined up, ready to go to, to answer every single objection from every conceivable person at every single level around the business. And even if once you've done that and the whole business has bought this thing, that's, that's when it's put together. And Paul Simon said, everything put together falls apart. And it's falling apart from that moment onwards because it then starts to trickle back down through the organization and it ends up going through that decoupled process and it ends up with a, with a producer making it a, a piece of social content. 
and they they say, what music should I use? I've got 500 bucks. And they go to a library and they use something that sounds great, uh, but it's not the Sonic branding. So you have to engage every single person and say, you know what? I could have saved you 500 bucks. We've already built this thing. Just stick this on. Then, then someone says, well, this one doesn't fit perfectly. Then you have to educate them about how they can adapt it and change it. Like it's a constant, never-ending, non-stop, running around, just keeping the plate spinning, doing the strategy, putting the thing together, selling it to the CEO, having that big launch moment is really, really just the start. And back to that common mistake, the, the difficulty is in the execution. The difficulty is in making sure that when it goes back to the organization, when it's 10,000 miles from, from New York, where it's developed, and it's, it's in a, a whole different market, 10 years down the line, is it still going to be used? And that's the, the real world. So again, I, I, I'll come back to it. I call it complex stakeholder management. It's basically plate spinning, keeping everyone informed, everyone educated, give everyone the right asset they need at their point of, of use, and keep everyone happy and on the program because otherwise the whole thing falls apart so easily, so easily. Because all it takes is one ad agency to say, you know what, let's license a huge track. Let's go and put Lady Gaga on a TV commercial. And then that's on the Super Bowl. And then the sound of the brand is Lady Gaga because mm -hmm. that's where all the money's going. So we, we have to make sure that we're really on top of this stuff. And that's why Sonic Branding is different to writing a piece of music. It's different to, to even just coming up with a, little, with a piece of strategy. It's really something that, that happens in the execution, in making intentional choices day after day, time after time, for the right piece of sound at the right touch point. So hopefully those that are listening, I uh, trust that there are people that understand this and maybe give Dan or me a call rather than just trying to figure it out on your own. Because there's a lot of moving spinning plates, as, as, as he says. After all of that cacophony, that chaos, <laughs> what can you tell me about that's exciting that's coming down the pike that could be groundbreaking? That could either be client work you're working on right now or just something unique in the sonic branding world that you're, you're seeing pop up that you want to see more of. I've seen over the over the years some things that have flared and disappeared that still have some possibilities. Uh, one of which is uh, again AI. We can all agree that computers are taking over, but AI composition is definitely a an emerging technology. Still, uh, the few companies that have that managed to to crack it have have done so in in only very limited ways so far. But to be able to have a a computer write music relatively straightforward to have that music sound really great is it's not quite there yet there are some hybrid approaches though where, where people and computers work together but it, it actually as a technology and as an approach it will work really really well for a company that wants to be branded sonically that wants to invest in and use music consistently because it's quite easy to think that a, a five note mnemonic could be entered into a computer and 20 minutes later, that computer's developed 10,000 different versions of it. Uh, or it's even developing different versions of it on the fly for dynamic delivery to an Instagram ad that's just about to pop up on your, on your telephone. And it's doing that contextually, knowing exactly what else is in your, uh, is in your Instagram feed. So it's, it's, it's possible to think that you can have completely bespoke arrangements developed in microseconds delivered dynamically, including a brand's five-note mnemonic laid perfectly to picture because the AI engine understands the visual context of that video and is able to score perfectly to that video. So all those technologies 
more or less exists today. And that capability more or less exists, but no one has really scaled it. No one's really cracked making the music sound as good as human crafted music. But you said the technology moves so fast and we should, we have to plan for sort of exponential growth in these things. Uh, if one person can do it today, then a thousand will be doing it by next week. So at some point, one of these AI music companies will, will crack it. They'll be able to go across genres and write music that really sounds, uh, sounds like it's got a human touch to it. And then all bets are off for composers. Uh, <laughs> But all bets have been off for composers for a long time. They're still out there punching. But when I started, even 20 years ago, there weren't that many guys who could, sorry, I said guys the whole time, entirely the wrong term these days. There weren't that many people who could uh, deliver a piece of music for a TV commercial because you needed a studio and you needed to have invested a lot in mastering and in, in some high quality samples. Now, almost anyone can do it from their Mac sitting on the beach. So there was a democratization, a, a kind of a, a lessening, a lowering of the barriers to entry to being a composer that's taken place over the last 20 years. We can all write pretty amazing music just on GarageBand these days. We can definitely foresee a, a place where someone can draw a picture and scan it, and that picture will be scored and turned into a beautiful piece of music by, by a computer. And that's, that's probably not far off. And then training to be a composer? Well, what is that going to be? Yeah, that's a rhetorical question I, for all those I composers. Have a, I have a less doom and gloom on the composers because I am one and I'm still working. But I just think that this is now is the time for fellow composers to find your niche because... And, and also understand business. That's the other thing, too, is so many composers just write music and throw it into a production comp a library or um, production house or something like that and just hope something sticks. Uh, when they're asked what do they write, generally they say, oh, I write everything. Niche down, figure out what your thing is, and then come up with something extraordinary. You know, not, not just... I want to sound like Lady Gaga, sound like yourself. And I feel that even though there is this uh, technology, and I agree with you, it is getting to the point where AI will be able to predict what music can flow into all these different digital platforms and everything. But um, uh, there, there's still value to the human touch, the human approach, uh, and people will look for just the right niche. I still think that we humans are in charge. And then, so I, I back that. And there is a short window for, to make the most of it at this point. <laughs> but just think of how the, the digital economy lines up from an algorithm that can write the piece of music based upon what was a hit last week. So the say the data that comes out of the DSP, the data that comes out of Spotify mm -hmm. tells you exactly the DNA musically of, of what is being streamed. Feed that data straight into a, an algorithm that, or an AI that writes a new piece of music that's same but slightly different. It, it, without a human ever touching it, it gets distributed back to the DSP, back to back to Spotify. It plays, and you end up with a complete circle of music that is created from machine learning as a data input, and then then developed using machine learning. And it's just going to keep our attention. What the computers have done is is work out how to get our attention and keep it. They're really good at it, and I think that's the the biggest threat from 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 AI and machine learning is not that we get a a Terminator. It's not this uh, T-1000 that's going to come and shoot everyone. I think it's just that the, the AIs take all our attention and we haven't got any left for anything else. Uh, that's, that's really the danger of this stuff. But it's going to happen in music and it's probably going to happen in music first. Music's always led the way for technology. So all these emerging platforms usually get tried out 
on music. It, it won't be long until the whole musical economy is fed by and delivered by machines. Well, only time will tell. We'll see. We'll see how correct you are. <laughs> you can write that one down. I Twenty will. years. Yes, I will, and I'll check back and be like, um, by the way. <laughs> Well, thank you, Daniel, so much for your time. You are a wealth of knowledge. This has been really fun. It's a pleasure. I hope you're enjoying the show. Don't forget to subscribe on all the major podcast channels. Share with friends, follow, and rate it. Spread the word because, well, more people should know about this stuff. I know you know that now. For any other inquiries, you can find me at Dreamer Productions. That's D-R-E-A-M-R productions.com or soundandmarketing.com, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. You can also email me at Gina, J-E-A-N-N-A at dreamerproductions.com. All links will be provided in the show notes. Let's make this world of sound more intriguing, more unique, and more and more on brand.